All right, Jesse, last week was a sad but classic tale of love gone fatally wrong. What's the story this time around? When one half of a respected New Jersey couple is shot dead on their way home from Atlantic City, the police have to wade through shocking secrets and nefarious murder plots to find the heinous individuals responsible for the death. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad spouses, worse affair partners, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please, please, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are so excited as always to welcome and shout out a new set of amazing patrons. Welcome to Jasmine L and Shauna B, Mimi C and Leah, and Jenna B and Tracy P. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We have some new Patreon content coming your way. We also have, you guys have probably already listened to it. It's been out by now. The current affairs on Anna Walsh, and we will continue to update that story as things and news continue to break. What a story that is, huh? Wow. It is really an unfolding love murder in real time. So our heart goes out to Anna's family. And I think without further ado, Andrea, we should jump into today's episode. Let's do it. Robbie Marshall was home from college on September 6th, 1984. He should have been in a Villanova dorm, but a prank gone wrong over the spring semester of his freshman year had netted him a little time out for his first sophomore year session. Though it had frustrated his father and namesake, Robert O. Marshall, Robbie's mother, Maria, had welcomed her eldest child back to the home with open arms. Robbie hated disappointing his parents, but did not really mind some extra home time with his family. That afternoon, he and his girlfriend had played Trivial Pursuit with Maria, who schooled them as always. Robbie knew that his 42-year-old mother was widely considered to be the most beautiful and stylish woman in Toms River, New Jersey, their hometown. Maria had a warm smile, youthful face and figure, and was always dressed immaculately in the latest fashions. What people didn't always get to see, though, was her wicked brilliance. She was smart, funny, and quick, but always generous enough not to hog the spotlight, which was probably an impossibility when she was married to Robbie's father, a strapping 6'1 salesman who could not help but be the center of attention. Robbie looked up to both of his parents. They were teenage sweethearts who had made good and come up in the world together. After 20 years of marriage, they had raised three sons, bought a house in the coveted Brookside section of town, and become mainstays in the country club society set. That night, the dashing duo were leaving to drive the 50 or so miles to Atlantic City, where they would eat at a fantastic restaurant and then play a few hours worth of blackjack. It seemed, though, that regardless of the outcome of their gambling, Rob and Maria Marshall were truly winners. 
When Robbie kissed his mother goodbye that night, her perfume still lingering in his nose, he had no idea the devastating shitstorm that was about to come his way. Because what happened that night created a loss that surpassed any of the Marshall boys' beliefs. Only one of their parents would return home in the wee hours of September 7th, 1984. The coming months and years would be filled with the unveiling of shocking secrets, burning betrayals, and a crime so terrible it would cross several state lines and shock a family and a community to the core. The repercussions of someone's selfish and craven actions would reverberate for decades. So my sources today are a Medium article by Lori Johnston that just came out, I believe, December 22nd of last year. So it's relatively new, and I'm not giving you the title yet because it will give away the story. And then I also read the excellent book Blind Faith by Joe McGinnis. So I'll quote him a couple times throughout this episode. You said that first book came out like this December? No, no, it's a Medium article. Oh, a Medium article. Medium article by Lori Johnston. I just like stumbled upon it, thank goodness, because she did a great job. It was a very comprehensive article, which I appreciated. It was clear that she had also read this book, Blind Faith, which is a pretty thick book. It's like 450 pages, I think. Wow. But it's a fantastically written true crime book because he interviewed just about everybody who was involved in this and got a lot of the Marshall son's perspective, which I appreciated. So let's go back in time and talk about Maria and Rob when they were still the golden couple with the bright, beautiful future ahead of them. Maria Pazinski had been born in Philadelphia in the early 1940s to Catholic Polish-American parents. Her father was a doctor and her mother a homemaker. Maria was a treasured only child whose father was fiercely protective of her. And he had a good reason to be Her father's name was Vincent, and he had gone through his own traumatic experience as a very young boy, which made him kind of hold his loved ones closer to him. So he was only nine years old, and this was, I think, around 1913, 1914. And he was out in Philadelphia taking a walk on a Sunday with his family. And at the time... Flight was still something very exciting and new, and it was getting to the point where it was commonplace enough where it was almost like a carnival trick, like you could go up in the air on a flying jenny and come out for like $5 a ride. And so his little brother and his mom ended up going up and flying up in the air, and then something went horrifically wrong, and the plane crashed right in front of him and his father. And his mother and his brother passed away in the plane crash. That's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And his mother was considered the first resident or one of the first residents, given that there was other people, I think, on this plane, to die in a plane crash. Ever? Of Philadelphia. So the first set of residents in Philadelphia to die in a plane crash. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So that is not something that you want to be famous for. And so this affected, obviously, a nine-year-old, very much so. And so Vincent grew to become a doctor, to help other people. And with Maria, he was, of course, very protective of her. I mean, for multiple reasons. I think most parents are protective of their kids, especially a dad who only has one daughter. Yes, 100%. And Maria really was a healing balm to the trauma of Vincent's youth. She was, by all accounts, a pretty perfect kid. I mean, you have a kid like Maria, you only need one. She was smart, sweet, beautiful, 
she went to Catholic school. And according to the nuns who taught her at Sunday school, that she had this like voice of an actual angel when she sang in the choir. So there's a picture of her I will put on the Instagram, guys. And she is just this perfect, gorgeous little thing. Vincent did his best to instill values in Maria and steer her towards a good life. But there's really not much one can do when their kids hit their teens and start dating. They're going to date whoever they want to date, whether you like it or not. Yes, 100 percent. Yeah. (laughs) So Maria knew her father wasn't crazy about her hanging out with boys at all, which is why at 15 years old, she had to kind of hide the fact that she was dating an 18 year old boy she had met at a party And his name was Robert Marshall. And he definitely would not have approved because Rob's family was not as well off as Maria's. His father was a chronically underemployed alcoholic salesman who moved the family around. And and basically the family said they had like six kids, too. The dad and the mom would always say like, oh, he's a traveling salesman. We got to move around for his job. But really, it was because he kept getting fired for drinking on the job because he couldn't keep a job. Exactly. As a result, I think Rob ended up going to something like 10 to 15 schools throughout his life and never really felt settled, never really got to stay in one spot to get to know anyone. And he kind of felt like an outsider for the rest of his life because of of this defining moment in his childhood and adolescence. And maybe it was the moving around or maybe he just wasn't inclined to scholarship in general. But Rob, even though he was kind of street smart and bright, was a very poor student. He did love playing music, however, and he became a drummer in a popular local dance band in Philadelphia, which is when he ended up meeting 15-year-old Maria. His band was playing at a going away party that she happened to be at. And I know another girl that can't resist a drummer. I mean, how can you? How can you? They're always the cutest ones. (laughs) Quiet, in the back, don't need to be the center of attention, just doing their thing. Yeah, no, it's definitely guilty. (laughs) Guilty? Guilty as charged over here, Andy. I feel like I probably would have been more of like a lead singer gal if I had been inclined to that sort of thing. (laughs) Instead, I'm just a a groupie for podcasters, apparently. You are. You guys are a (laughs) podcast household. Yeah, so of course she could not resist the cute drummer and they started sneaking around behind Dr. Pazinski's back. Well, eventually they had to come clean and a condition of Vincent's approval of the relationship, which they both wanted to turn into marriage, was that Rob had to graduate college. And he was, again, not a great student, but he managed to get himself accepted into Villanova University, which I guess was not that academically rigorous back in the 60s. He was uh, trying to get in for, I think, 1959. And he also joined the ROTC with the goal of hopefully going into naval flight school. That's what he wanted to do. That'll also just like give you great discipline for life and get you out of bed in the morning at college. Absolutely. And so he was good at the ROTC stuff. He still wasn't very good at school. And he was looking at graduating with a 1.9. What? 1.9. Yeah. I mean, he's still graduating. He's still graduating. However, he could not become a commissioned officer if he had less than a 2.0. Wow. The salesman stuff started pretty early. He managed to convince one of his professors to upgrade him from a failing grade to a C just to nudge that 1.9 up to a 2.0. That's good. Yeah. It's very clueless. It's Cher Horowitz. 
<laughs> in the opening scene where she talks up her grades. So he did end up getting that 2.0 and he was accepted into a Navy flight program in Pensacola, Florida after graduation. When Rob became a commissioned officer of the U.S. Navy, as well as a college graduate, Dr. Pazinski ran out of reasons to forbid the union. The reluctant father of the bride walked a glowing Maria down the aisle on December 28, 1963. When Rob was stationed in New Jersey, the couple found Tom's River and decided to put down roots there. Maria and Rob welcomed eldest two sons, Robbie and Chris, in the mid to late 60s, and Rob decided that it was time to leave the military and go into business. He began to sell life insurance and truly found his calling. That year, they said he sold over $2 million worth of policies, and that's 16 or $17 million in today's money. Wow. He was real good at his job. People said he was a little aggressive, but I think you need that in sales. Yeah, you do. And also, like, I feel like life insurance is the kind of thing you can sit on for a while and not do it. I think so many people, myself included, hate thinking about my own fatality or my partner's, and I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. And, but I think even though you do need to be persistent, I think it is my life insurance guy was so patient and calm. I don't know how I would have responded with someone who was extremely aggressive with it. You know, yeah. it was like, think about your death. Think about your children. <laughs> they're crying. They're at your funeral. And then they have no money. Yeah. I mean, you talk about getting bullied into something. I don't know if that's what he was doing. That's just my own, my own conjecture. I'm just imagining myself as a very ruthless life insurance salesperson. Yes. <laughs> In 1971, the couple's last child, John, was born and the Marshalls were moving on up. So they had upgraded to fancier houses, I think, twice or three times. And the last time they ended up in the excellent and exclusive Brookside area of Tom's River. They put in an in-ground pool. Remember, that was such a big deal. The in-ground pools. Such a status symbol. It really was. I think it still is. It's fancy, y'all. And then they also joined the country club. Rob became one of the top 50 insurance salesmen in the United States. Wow. So he was bringing in the big bucks. Both Rob and Rick became fixtures in community projects and different groups and generally were very well known and respected. But of all the things that Rob had acquired and achieved, wealth, status, respect, it seemed that earning Maria's love was still his greatest feat. Joe McGinnis wrote, What Rob seemed to take the most pride in and spend the most time talking about was his wife, Maria, or as he consistently referred to her, the beautiful Maria. He talked about how much he loved her, how good to her he was, how proud he was to be married to such a fine-looking woman who always knew just where to go to buy the best clothes and then how to wear them so well. Look at her, he'd say, practically every Saturday night at the club or in their final years at a lavish casino restaurant in Atlantic City. Isn't she gorgeous? Isn't she just absolutely beautiful? Which made the events of the early morning hours of September 7th, 1984, all the more horrifying and tragic. Rob would later tell the police that he and Maria had left the Atlantic City Casino around midnight. After passing through a toll plaza, he began to feel a strange vibration in the car, which made him think that something was wonky going on with the tire. He knew of a picnic area that was a few miles up, so he pulled over there to check the tire. As he was getting out of the car, he did notice that another car had pulled in behind them. He didn't think much of it. He went over to open the trunk to get the spare tire, 
And he said that he must have been struck in the head at that point. But he didn't see anything. He didn't remember anything. He just claimed that he came to, he was knocked unconscious, and he came to, and when he looked in the car, it was clear that the attacker had shot Maria. Um, did he have any wound on his head when he was in? He did. Okay. So it was clear that he had definitely been hit with something. His head was split open. So Maria, though, was shot. So this is interesting because he's a six-foot-one guy. She's a pretty tiny woman. Now, he was hit in the head and left alive, and she was shot twice in the back. What? How does that even happen when she's in the car? It looks like somebody had opened the door and shot her twice in the back like she was lying down. So potentially she was sleeping. Whoa. Maybe they told her to lay down and face down on the seat. But it looked as though she was in a prone position when she was shot. Wow. When the police arrived on the scene, Rob told them what had happened and was taken to the emergency room where he was treated with a few stitches to the head injury. After that, he was allowed to go home. He did consult with a priest who came with him and helped him share the grim news with his children. So his eldest, Robbie, who was supposed to be in his sophomore year of college, was home. His youngest, John, was only 13. And then they had to call Chris, the middle son, home. He was at Lehigh University. He was in his freshman year. He had just started school. This is a really great book for you guys to check out. I'm not able to fill this podcast with everything about the case, but they do a beautiful job of talking about the son's memories of their mother. And Chris talks about how he was like a champion swimmer and how Maria was up every morning at five in the morning, making sure he had breakfast before practice. Everybody knew who she was because she would always dress like super mom with the school shirt or a silly hat and just it like got voted, I guess, that his senior year best sports parent or something. She was just somebody who seemed to really enjoy parenthood, who loved her son so much and would spend all of her time like playing with them, playing Trivial Pursuit with them. And they talked about how most teenage boys get to a point where they don't want to hang out with their mom. But these guys did. They loved their mom so much that they were like, yeah, my girlfriend and I hang out with her and she's fun and she's cool to be around. So sad. She was the beating heart of this family. So this absolutely destroyed everyone. Meanwhile, back at the scene, the police were already skeptical of Rob's story, which stop it instantaneously from the get. Okay, so number one, the place that he pulled over was a very odd choice. The Marshalls did this drive every week. This was part of their weekly routine. This happened to be a Thursday night, but I think either Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, one night a week, they would always make this almost hour-long drive to Atlantic City because this was when Atlantic City was, like, hot and fresh in, like, the early 80s, and it was, like, the cool, fun thing to do. If that was, like, 50 minutes from your house, that would be a normal, fun thing to do. Yeah. Oh, my God. Absolutely. They would drive in. They would go. It's like mini Vegas back then. Now it's like, I know Atlantic City's a little tired. Yeah, so is Vegas, though. I mean, everything gets a little tired after a while. So they would go in. They'd have this nice dinner. They would gamble. They'd have fun. It was a perfect date night. So they did this all of the time. So he knows this drive really well. And he said that he had started to feel the car be a little off in this toll plaza. Now, this was very well lit, and there was places to pull over all over this toll plaza. Yeah. 
not good timing to say when you felt the car being weird because like that would have been perfect because there's usually like CPH and officers at toll plazas too. Exactly. So there's, yeah, state troopers, there's people around in those areas that could help you. So instead, they pulled into this pitch dark closed picnic area, which even had a sign that said closed at sundown, no parking. And he had to drive like a hundred yards in. The car was in a very weird area where even the cops said when they came to investigate the scene that they were like bumping into things and had to get flashlights out in order to see what was going on. So there's no way this guy could have changed a tire there. It just doesn't make any sense. Also, if he had just driven three additional miles, there was a 24-7 Roy Rogers restaurant open. Come on. Where tons of people were. There's people to help. I think there was a gas station. So it just is like a very odd choice. So immediately their antennas are up about that. And he should have known this. And it's like, girls got to pee always. So like, we're going to pick the Roy (laughs) Rogers over the random abandoned picnic pull off. 100%. Yes. Especially out after like a night of drinking. (laughs) I don't know. And also, I gotta say, she was a real classy lady. I don't think she's popping a squat in the woods over here. Number two, they did find a slit in one of the tires. Like it was a clean slit, like somebody slid it with a knife on purpose. So this did indicate foul play, which Rob had kind of suggested. He said that when he came to, he had like a couple grand worth of winnings in his pocket. And so he said that when he came out of it, he realized he had been robbed. And so they had taken his winnings. So he basically said, I don't know, the best thing I can come up with is that somebody saw that I won at the casino and maybe they slit my tire to force me to stop so that they could rob me. Like they slipped my tire, they watched me go, then they pulled over behind me. That was the car that came in. And then they knocked me out and shot my wife to rob us. You don't need to solve your own crime, sir. They always talk too much. So first of all, he's offering too much information. But the other thing is, is that the tire still had air in it. It did not look like it had driven miles with the slit in it. They were like, if it had driven miles, it would have been completely flat, empty. It would not be in good condition. It appeared that it had been slit after Maria had been shot. So that's red flag number two that's going up. And then, of course, the thing that we've already kind of touched on is if this was indeed a robbery, why would you only knock out the six foot one guy who's big and tough and could potentially get up off the ground and attack you and then shoot the sleeping woman or the tiny woman in the front seat in the car twice when she doesn't really represent that big of a threat to you. And then moreover, you're going to have to dig in that guy who's not dead's pockets to get the money. And she had expensive jewelry on and they hadn't taken it. So, 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 so sus. It's very, very sus. I would say the whole thing stinks to high heaven, I tell ya. The investigators further got a bad taste in their mouth when they met Rob back up at his house at five in the morning after he had informed two out of three of his children of their mother's death. So they went to question him and they said that he acted more like a man hosting a cocktail party 
than a grieving husband who had narrowly avoided murder himself, if this was the case. Rob had apparently changed into a fresh suit and even offered the officers a drink. It's five in the morning. They're investigating his wife's death that had just occurred. He's home from the hospital, and apparently he's having a cocktail and offering them a drink. And just told his sons that their mother is dead. Yeah. So at this initial interview, they asked Rob if there had been any problems in the Marshall's marriage. And Rob claimed that Maria was a perfect wife and that their 20-year-long union was absolutely fantastic. No problems. Which is also a lie. Anyone who's been married for 20 years is going to have at least a couple minor problems. Yeah. I don't know if every person, but he's obviously not an actual real grieving person because there's something really fishy going on here. But I can't imagine something happening and not being guilty and then wanting to talk about a nitty detail of why things are wrong. You know, it's such a weird question to also ask someone who's actually grieving. (laughs) What was fucked up about your marriage? I feel like they would have handled it with more sensitivity if he had been a wreck, but he wasn't. He was like, there's already a million red flags with the fresh suit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the speakeasy happy hour over at Rob's house. It's like, okay, calm down, Dean Martin. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty soon, which you might have guessed this, the investigators and unfortunately the Marshall's sons found out that that just was not the case. The marriage was far from perfect. After the shooting was publicized, a private eye who had been hired by Maria Marshall came forward to say that the murdered woman had suspected that Rob was unfaithful. When the P.I. dug in, he found out that, yes, Rob was indeed a cheating bastard. And he also found out that the Marshalls were deeply in debt, mortgaged to the hilt, And to Maria's horror, Rob had even forged her signature on six-figure loan agreements without her knowledge. Wow. Yeah. So she had just found this out a few months, I think like June, July of 1984. And the murder happened in early September. So the PI was... Deeply saddened to hear that Maria was dead because he did say that she was the nicest woman he had ever met. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he said, look, I know her pretty well. I investigated her husband and she didn't have an enemy in the world except for her husband. You need to look at him. A divorce attorney also came forward to say that Maria had hired him over the summer of 1984 and that he had even prepared papers that she was supposed to serve Rob with for the divorce in late July, I believe. But Maria had had a change of heart. She told the attorney that she didn't want to end her marriage. She wanted to save it. He did not deserve her. No. And that's also what the PI said. He was like, this guy is a schmuck. Like, I was working with this woman and I was like, she's the goddamn greatest. (laughs) Like, I mean, what man is cheating on this wonderful woman? But you know what? We've talked about it before. They always downgrade. (sighs) They always do it. All of those like dirty cheaters always like their side pieces are never as good as their main gal. No, how could they be if their main gal is someone like Maria? Yeah. Well, yeah, she just she still loved him. She wanted to stay together. And around the same time that the police were discovering Rob's infidelity, so were his sons. And they were finding out from Rob himself. Was he like bragging? A little bit. Oh, my God. That's 
horrifying. His dad must have done the same thing. He must have, right? Had to have, because this seems like it's all, like, learned behavior. Well, he was kind of bragging to his friends first. I mean, within days of Maria being murdered, he was already talking about his affair partner to his friends who were horrified. One of his really good friends, this guy Sal, was actually, like, real pissed at him because only 10 days before the murder, he had been, like, lecturing Sal about how to make time for his wife and how him and Maria are so happy. And then she's murdered, and literally the first few things he talks about is, hey, it's probably going to come out in the investigation that I've been having this 14-month-long affair, and so I just want to tell you about it. And it was his friends and his brother-in-law, this guy, Gene, who is his, it's his sister's brother. So it's not related to Maria. Obviously, she was an only child. And his brother-in-law said, you need to talk to your children. So he didn't start out by bragging to his boys. At first, it was like covering his ass because this was going to come out. It was probably best that they heard it from him. I mean, I think this must have been only two days or so after these poor kids had found out the worst thing you could imagine. Yeah, no, that's horrifying. Yeah, so he sat his sons down to tell them at the time of their mother's murder, he had actually been planning to leave her for another woman, a woman they already knew (gasps) and they knew their mother hated and with whom he said he was deeply in love with. The other woman was a married middle school vice principal who lived in their neighborhood and had children around the same age as them. Her name was Felice Rosenberg, which is a pseudonym for reasons I'll get into later. In any case, while Rob is delivering this shocking news to the kids, according to the boy's account later to author Joe McGinnis, He said the following to them. So he's like, just told them the shocking news. And then he said, Felice and I are so good together. You should just see us together. And you will. I know she'll never replace mom, but she can be your friend. And she wants to be. She'll be spending a lot of time here now. And you'll all get to know each other very well. This guy's delusional. Yeah. His eldest son was like, the minute she walks in this door, I will be leaving. You can kindly go fuck yourself. Oh, my God. Wow. So Felice was around the same age as Maria, but the opposite in just about every other way. While Maria was refined, tasteful, and a perfectly put-together blonde, Felice was a bold, brassy brunette whose flirtations bordered on the vulgar. She did have a reputation in town, and there were rumored affairs before Rob Marshall and her got together. She's very, and I say this, like, because it makes me sad because I'm team Rizzo, but she's very, like, Rizzo to Maria's Sandra D over oh, here. LOL. <laughs> <laughs> she is. And I'm always team Rizzo, guys. But in this case, they were, like, the comparison that I could come up with here. Oh, my gosh. Hilarious. And honestly, if it wasn't for, I guess, the husband stealing and the constant infidelity, Felice was probably a good time. Author Joe McGinnis wrote that she had this over-the-top 40th birthday party where male strippers fake kidnapped her and then carried her into the party on a litter, blindfolded, and apparently all the women were instructed to wear wigs and dress exactly like her with her signature makeup and nail polish. 
Which, that's a little narcissistic. Didn't you say she's a vice principal at a middle school? (laughs) Yes. So yeah, she was just like very flashy. It seems like this town did not know what to make of her for the most part. Her father was wealthier. He owned a car dealership in town. So she had daddy's money. She was splashy. I guess she was always into whatever the new faddish thing, like transcendental meditation in the 70s. She was just somebody who was doing stuff. She would roller skate around the neighborhood in her little exercise outfits. I mean, she's a scene. Let's just say like she's a scene. So his friends are kind of like, this is way too on the nose, obvious choice as an affair partner. It's just very confounding going from Maria to this whole thing. The Marshalls and the Rosenbergs had known each other socially for a while. And Maria had always had a strong dislike for Felice, which her sons had noticed and thought was odd because Maria didn't not get along with anyone. Like she got along with absolutely everyone else. So it was very bizarre that she felt so strongly that they not hang out over at the Rosenberg's house and be around this woman, which is, I guess, like trust your gut, huh? Because this was before she even found out about the affair. She just knew that this was bad news bears. Yeah. I mean, she's also married too, right? She's also married. Mm-hmm. And I guess that even though Maria didn't like Felice, Rob had some sort of friendship with her before the affair, which is also a huge red flag. If your partner doesn't respect your wishes. You're a grown adult, man. Yeah. Why do you need to be friends with that married lady? No, you You don't. don't. You don't. Period. So while Felice was rumored to have dalliances before, this affair was different. Rob and Felice had gone from friends to lovers to soulmates in about 14 months' time. Wow. Fast track. Yeah. The couple had been planning to break the news to their spouses soon and had already rented a little love shack on the beach to start their new life together. Um. So, yeah. Now that Maria was out of the picture permanently, Rob felt as though he could live his truth. And you're right. He was delusional. He thought that somehow he could break the news to everyone and that they were going to be happy for him and happy that he had somebody to help him heal during this difficult time. Also, sir, do you remember that you have a 13-year-old son? It's not like empty nest situation. Like that boy desperately needs his mom to get through high school. And he needs a strong role model to look up to. Well, literally a day or two after his wife of 20 years was brutally murdered, he was telling friends that Felice was everything he could have ever dreamed of. According to recollections reported to Joe McGinnis, this is from, I think, Sal and Jean, Rob said, quote, physically, the sexual part, it's so far beyond anything that Maria could have ever comprehended. But the relationship is much more than that. It's not just our bodies. We're soulmates. I would like to punch him in the face. Yeah. There's a place at a time, and this is definitely not it. Well, the Marshall boys and family friends were struggling to process all of this, including the new information of their father's infidelity for months. The police were hard at work nailing Rob as hard as he was nailing Felice. I see what you did there. <laughs> that was some low-hanging fruit, but but um, so's Felice. Wow. 
Now you guys know why I'm using a pseudonym. This is mean. We're getting mean. By now, the autopsy report had come back and it erased any doubt that this had been anything other than a calculated hit. The trajectory of the bullets made it clear that, like I said, that Maria had been lying face down in the front seat, likely sleeping when the gunman had shot her twice in the back. Andy, you know dogs are a huge part of my life. I grew up with dogs. I went on my first date with my husband, in part because he had a dog. And now we have a brand new dog, a great big old Bernese Mountain Dog puppy who is already 60 pounds at six months old. Oh, yeah. You guys are most definitely a dog family. And family is exactly the right word. Our pets are members of our family, so we shouldn't feed them like they're in the doghouse. Ha ha. <laughs> Instead, let's give them Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs, so you can bring out their best. Nom Nom's made with real, whole food that you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real, good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. Our new puppy, Artemis, or Artie as we call her, is a bit of a challenging eater. Burners have a tendency for stomach issues, like diarrhea, guys. It's pretty gross. And we've had to try a number of different diets to get things just right for her. And that's why we love how much care and personalization Nom Nom offers. It just makes such a difference for her and, to be honest, us who have to clean up everything. <laughs> Nom Nom's ingredients are cooked individually, then mixed. Because science tells us that every protein, carb, and veggie has different cook times and methods. This gives your dog efficient energy and packs in the vitamins and minerals that they need, truly getting the most out of every bite. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail is not wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Is Artie's tail wagging? Absolutely. She's thrilled. I like, honestly, we went through so many different foods. I'm so, so glad that Nom Nom came into our lives. Go right now for 50% off your no risk two week trial at nom.com slash lovemurder spelled try n o m dot com slash lovemurder for 50% off. Try nom.com slash lovemurder. Think back to sex ed for a moment. You probably learned all about how to prevent pregnancy, but what about how to plan for it? That's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within six business days. You'll get insight into your hormone levels, like your ovarian reserve, a.k.a. if you have more or fewer eggs than average for your age, and other important factors that can impact your fertility. The results go deep into what every hormone means, and you can also download the results to review with your doctor for next steps. Andy, this is such an awesome product. I definitely wish I had known about this when we were trying to get pregnant. Seriously. Did you know that one out of eight couples struggle with infertility? I was one of them for sure. It's still such a hush-hush, hard-to-talk-about topic for so many people. 
But with companies like Modern Fertility, there are more resources available than ever. It's truly amazing. And it's also so affordable. Traditional hormone testing at a fertility clinic can cost over $600. But Modern Fertility tests the same general set of hormones for only $179. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder, you can get $20 off your test. Plus, you can get reimbursed for the test through your FSA or HSA. If you want kids today, or maybe just one day in the future, clinically sound information about your body can help you make the right decision for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. That means your test will only cost $159, which is a fraction of what it would cost at a fertility clinic. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. Modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. A detective had also already looked up the life insurance salesman personal policies and were not at all surprised to discover that Rob had $1.5 million of coverage on Maria, a stay-at-home mom. In 1984. Yes, that's more like $4.3 million in today's money. Also, Andy... 1.2 of that $1.5 million in 1984 money had been purchased after Rob's affair with Felice had begun. Wow. I mean, that's what you get for like bragging around town that you've been having an affair for 14 months. Like everyone's got your schedule dialed. Like they're going to look at every move you did for the last 14 months. And you don't think you're going to get busted on that, sir? Furthermore, Andy, 100 grand of it had been rushed into effect and purchased on September 6th, the very day that Maria and Rob had gone out to play blackjack in Atlantic City, and only one of them had returned. Hours before she was murdered. I mean, could you make it any more obvious? Also, you work in life insurance. How do you not know that people have been busted for this before? Is your brain clouded by all of your lady loving going on with Feliz? I don't understand. I mean, I really think it was. I think it was. There's no excuse for this. So we've got a cheating husband who is massively in debt, a wife that's about to hit him with an expensive divorce and take away the respect of his sons, the respect of his community. And also she's insured for the modern day equivalent of $4.3 million. So like you add it all up and it seems pretty obvious. Yeah, but he thinks that in regards to his reputation, that going around bragging, having an affair with Rizzo over here isn't going to destroy him? I think that he thought the greater community was just going to get over it. Like, the people he told were his close friends and his sons. And I think that he thought that they would keep it close to their vest enough that people would assume that he got together with Felice after Maria died. Two days after. We all grieve differently, Andrea. Do not even. Guys, this is far from a whodunit. My apologies. So they interviewed Felice like the day after the shooting, basically. Like they knew this very quickly thanks to the PI and the divorce attorney. And Felice did confirm the affair. She also shared that at some point Rob had suggested that their lives would be easier if their spouses no longer existed. He had also told her that they were deeply in debt but it could all be solved if Maria happened to die because of his the insurance he had on her. 
He also said that they were deeply in debt because of Maria. He said to his mistress that he couldn't control Maria's spending, which is why they had problems in the relationship. Disgusting. Which it is actually because of his gambling. He had a gambling problem. And I'm sure that he was spending money like he had a a little rental bungalow on the beach. That doesn't come cheap. So maybe you should look in the mirror there, sir. So she said that one time he kind of made an overture like, what do you think? I mean, do you think that there's somebody that could like bump her off or something? He like made some allusion to getting rid of her. And Felice said, you're crazy. Absolutely not. And don't like talk like that or we're not going to be together because that's crossing a line. But she went on to say, if anyone was going to be involved in anything like that, it would be this guy, Patsy Racine, who was rumored to be a part of the mafia or be connected to the mafia somehow. It's always a Patsy. It's always a Patsy. Now, this guy, Patsy, was not actually connected to this or directly connected in any way to this murder. But the police now were convinced that it was a hit job. They believed that it wasn't Rob who fired the gun that killed his wife. They did this based on the fact that there was no weapon found at the scene. And I'm pretty sure that he didn't have gunpowder residue or anything on his hands. And also just Rob was not the type to get his hands dirty, clearly. And if he'd already been like floating this idea by his mistress, it seemed most likely that he had probably hired a hit person. So now they just needed to find that person. The investigators combed through the marshal's phone records and found quite a lot of phone calls to Shreveport, Louisiana, specifically to a hardware store there and the private residence of a man named Robert Cumber. And since we have already a ton of Robs in the story, we're going to call him Bob, but I think he went by Robert. Okay, (laughs) so it's just Bob Cumber now because we cannot handle any more Robs and Robbies. So lo and behold, Bob Cumber works at this hardware store. So he's got all these calls to this house and to the guy's work. And this Bob Cumber happened to be visiting an old friend in Tom's River and happened to go to this party that both Maria and Rob had attended shortly before her murder. So they, of course, interview this guy. And a nervous Bob Cumber told the police that, yes, he had met Rob and Maria, And he had exchanged information with Rob so he could discuss getting an IRA. And the police look at the phone records and they say, 31 phone calls about an IRA, which is going to net Rob maybe 50 bucks. He's going to really make 31 phone calls about this for a couple months. Yeah, I think not. There was also a call to Rob from a hotel in Atlantic City that came from a James Davis who, according to the hotel's log, was also from Shreveport. So there's a Shreveport connection here that they're starting to try to figure out. It's the Shreveport connection. Yes. Of all places, from New Jersey to Shreveport, for whatever reason. So the police end up searching this James Davis's place, and they find a note that was in Bob Cumber's handwriting from the hardware store, literally on like hardware store stationery, saying that he should be getting $3,000. And they found a money order from Rob Marshall. Oh, my. It's like Hansel and Gretel. It's like a fairy tale. We'll just say it's generally like a fairy tale I mean, there's literally little breadcrumbs everywhere for the cops. They're like nibbling them up. 
I mean, this is happening very quickly, too. I mean, they're finding this out extremely fast. And the funniest thing about this is that they're in Shreveport in James Davis's house. And he's saying, it wasn't me. I didn't go up to New Jersey. I swear it wasn't me. And his wife is in the room and she's like, what did you do now? How'd you get yourself in trouble? What's going on? And he's trying to dummy up. He's trying not to say anything because he knows other people connected to this whole thing. And he's like, I'm not saying anything. I'm getting an attorney. And she's like, I'm going to need to talk to you outside to the detective. She's like, you come on outside with me. I'll tell you everything. And, and then he's like inside being like, you don't talk to that woman. Keep your mouth shut, woman. Oh, <laughs> she, my God. And she's like, his dumb ass is going to get arrested if I don't talk. And she's like, look, he's been here with me. He didn't go up to New Jersey. I don't know what's going on, but I can tell you that if anything is going on, you should look into this friend of his. Billy Wayne McKinnon, I can almost guarantee you that he's involved in this. He is a former dirty cop and he's become a PI, but he's up to all the sketchy stuff. And she said he was, quote, the kind of person who would do a murder. Wow. So at this point, the authorities knew they were pulling the right thread. So they got a whole mess of stuff going on in Shreveport, but they know they're pulling the right thread. So the first person that was arrested was Bob Cumber, the hardware store employee who was almost certainly the go-between between Rob Marshall and whoever actually killed Maria. In custody, Bob admitted as much. He said, though, that Billy Wayne McKinnon, the man who was named by James Davis's wife, was actually the one who had been up in New Jersey. And it was actually Billy Wayne who was receiving the money. He was using James Davis's name. Yes. Yeah, of course. He's an old cop. He knows to not use his own name. He knows all the ways. And he was, I think, giving James Davis some little cut to collect the money order for him. Wow. Yeah. So James Davis really was just kind of a cog in this whole little murder machine over here. And his wife was right to get him to spill on the real baddies. So they decided, well, sorry, James Davis, you're getting arrested, too. We're arresting all three of you all. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. I mean, his name is on the hotel and there's a money order to his name from Rob Marshall. Like, I feel like you kind of have to arrest him and hold you him. You have to. You have to hold them and, and see where the pieces actually end up falling. Meanwhile, back up north, things are not going so great for Rob Marshall. Oh, really? Why? What's wrong? Things fell apart real fast for this guy. His friends and family, including his middle son, Chris, now are beginning to suspect him of Maria's murder. Real quick... While people are finding out more and more about what's going on and the newspaper is starting to spill some details. And I do not know if the affair was publicized right away, but people are at least word of mouth finding out stuff, like you said. And they're all going from super sorry and like bringing over casseroles to kind of giving him the dirty look. The side eye. The side eye and the hairy eyeball, as my mom would call it. So in his middle son, Chris, kind of had a weird gut feeling right from the beginning, right from the time he was told that something wasn't quite right. But at this point, Robbie, the oldest son, and his youngest son, who's only 13, were completely convinced that Rob was innocent. But the middle son was like kind of having some doubts at this point. And of course, the police are breathing down his neck. His life insurance money is on hold. They're not releasing that. They're pending an investigation, obviously. His murder associates in Shreveport are all getting arrested. So he knows that. The police are telling him, like, don't worry, we've got some guys in Shreveport that we're getting, we're picking up, and they're ready to talk. And worst of all, 
for Mr. Rob was that his lover and soulmate had dumped him. Oh. I mean, smart. It was the advice of her attorney. Her attorney was like, please do not talk to this man. Do not associate with him. Stay as far away from him as possible, unless you would like to be implicated in a murder as well. Wow. Okay. So he's just... Felice is out. She got back together with her husband. He took her back. Good for them, huh? Yeah. It was less than 20 days after the murder that this whole thing is going down everything now. Wow. Yeah. I think that she dumped him 18 days after Maria was murdered. On September 27th, 1984, only 20 days after the murder, a distraught Rob checked into a Best Western in Lakewood, New Jersey. Now, Andy, this was not any Best Western, and he did not check into just any old motel room. This was his regular room 16 that he had conducted his affair with Felice in. Oh, wow. Is he going to, like, mourn the affair? Yes. The police were keeping a pretty close eye on him at this point. He was the number one suspect, obviously. So they checked into the room adjacent to him and kept him under surveillance. They observed Rob leaving the room at 1045 to buy a Coca-Cola. And then again at 1130 p.m., where he went down to the front desk and they had a little tray out that you could put outgoing mail on. So he put an envelope on this tray, which naturally, as soon as he went back upstairs, the police grabbed and they found out that it was addressed to his brother-in-law who lived in Delaware. This is Gene. But on the back, he had written, to be opened in the event of my death. So now they're like, oh, shit, is he going to kill himself? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So they begin to call his room at just random intervals just to make sure he's answering. And then they hang up and they're still keeping an eye on the room. And so they ended up calling him at 1255 in the morning. And when he did not answer, they got the room key and they entered the room to make sure he was still alive. And he was, but he was passed out. On the nightstand, they found this foamy Coca-Cola mixture, and it looked like he had opened 50 sleeping capsules and had emptied the powder into the Coca-Cola. But the mixture was still full, and so he was able to be roused pretty easily. And he told the cops that, yes, he had wanted to kill himself, And he was trying to kill himself at the exact moment that they believed that his wife, his beloved wife, Maria, had been murdered. So he was trying to dramatically do it at the same time. But he had apparently dipped his finger in the concoction and tasted it. And that little taste was enough to make him fall asleep. I'm pretty sure it's all of the lies that you're exhausted from that made you fall asleep. I would be exhausted. I would be so exhausted by this time. So that's what he says. They're like, okay. They rushed him to the hospital where he was obviously physically fine. And then they checked him into a psychiatric hospital, which you have to do when somebody attempts suicide. Yes. So in the hotel room, they found a picture of Maria and the three boys and a tape recorder with three cassettes, one for each of his children. In the envelope, he had also recorded a message for Gene. So the police are realizing at this point that this was no suicide attempt, but it was a different type of attempt. It was an attempt 
to set up a legal defense. Yeah, to make himself look innocent. He says on these tapes to his sons and to Gene, I'm completely innocent. However, I'm getting railroaded, so I don't see any option. This is my way out. And specifically to Gene, he tells this like sob story that you don't need to tell, especially if you're actually going to commit suicide. And he explains how his relationship started. I mean, he is waxing poetic. He's like, it started as winks across the pool and then it turned into something real, something real and beautiful. It's like, you don't need to say this, buddy, unless you think that Felice might hear it or it might get publicized or it's going to be read at a court hearing or something. So, yeah, he's waxing poetic about this. And then he even goes on to say our marriage was already troubled because of Maria's spending. Again, he's going back to that. But then he's like, but, you know, she was never going to leave me. She wanted to start over. She was such a wonderful woman. It's so horrible. And, you know, I loved her so much. And even though I had the affair, we could have started over and basically, like, just tell people that I would have never hurt her. Tell people how much I loved her. Make sure my sons know that. But also, can you get a message to Felice? And then he, like, goes on about Felice and how how she's so wonderful and tell her to stop smoking and she needs to take care of herself. And I know that she's moving back in with David and she's getting back together with her husband, but she ends up keeping the beach house. I'm having some curtains that she wanted delivered there and tell her that I'm thinking of her. He literally like within one sentence goes from, I loved my wife so much. We could have maybe gotten back together too bad. Everything happened that way to, to talking about Felice again. And now he also says, I think it's probably best that I fill you in on what I know up to this point. As I mentioned the other day, I wired money to a fellow in Louisiana to pay off a bet. He goes on to explain then his involvement with Bob Cumber, James Davis, and Billy Wayne McKinnon. So he knows that they're all in custody. And now he's trying to wheedle his way into some innocent explanation for why he was in contact with these men. Oh my God, he's so annoying. (laughs) he's a very annoying man he's so annoying like you think they're just gonna read this after you like literally like fun dipped a sleeping pill concoction that he made and like is acting like he committed suicide which is insulting in and of itself and then you're trying to write your own script for your defense thinking that you're gonna get away with it well i think that he just felt like he could talk his way out of anything we also see that at the trial because he does take the stand in his own defense, which is kind of a no-no. It's generally not a great idea for the most part. So he attempted to explain the wire transfers by claiming that casino money had gone missing. So he had hired a private investigator named Billy Wayne McKinnon to look into the matter after he was recommended by Robert Cumber, this perfect stranger he had randomly met at a party And he was trying to say that he went to somebody out of state because he didn't want people locally to know for whatever reason. He also later tries to say that these were sports bets, that he was wiring the money for sports betting. So he's changing his story a little bit. He's trying to say, at least in this, in this note to Gene, which is he's recording, it's a tape. He was saying that the wire transfers were payment and that the last time that he saw Billy Wayne was in the Harrah's Casino the very night that Maria was killed. And he said at that point, he gave him 800 additional dollars for this non-existent investigation, which the investigators could prove very easily because there's 
no receipts. There's no files. There's no a private eye is going to give you some information if he's getting paid the equivalent of, I think at this point, like the modern day equivalent of 22 grand. If you're giving him that sort of money, he's going to give you some information. Unless it's like for something illegal. Exactly. Then there's going to be no trail of this happening. So the investigators are delighted at this point. He's putting Billy Wayne in New Jersey on the night of the murder and himself handing him money. Oh, my God. And so I think what he was trying to get across was that this guy was ripping him off and he maybe knew that Rob had deep pockets. Maybe he knew that Rob won that night. And so he's like probably trying to set up some situation in which Billy Wayne McKinnon just went rogue and did all of this by himself. Oh, my God. So he really is a dum-dum. The authorities now had cause to fully arrest Billy Wayne because I think that they had arrested the other two guys, but it was just like hearsay to get to Billy Wayne McKinnon because he had so cleverly used the other guy's name on everything. But now they full on have Rob in this recording just talking about him saying he was up placing him in New Jersey. So they're like, thanks, Rob. Now we can fully arrest Billy Wayne. So all three men were taken into custody in Louisiana and after some delays, finally extradited to New Jersey on December 3rd. Again, this is pretty quick, even after delays. This is only, a, you know, a matter of three months here. Less than that. The investigators agreed that Rob Marshall was the one that they wanted. So Rob's the big fish. That's the one they got. And they are totally willing to work with the other guys, depending on who's the shooter, who's the actual killer, to make some deals in order to nail Rob. Now, Billy Wayne McKinnon, who, like I said, was a former cop, was smart enough to know that there was almost no way that he was walking out of this scot-free, and he was the first one willing to make a deal. He swore that he wasn't the killer, and he told the police that he did actually know who the shooter was. It wasn't himself, he said, and that he had actually planned on just hustling Rob Marshall because he was like, what is this guy going to do? He's a cop. He knows. He's like, he can't, like, we made this joke before, but like, if somebody, you pay somebody money to kill somebody and they don't, there's very little recourse for your actions. You cannot go to the Better Business Bureau and say they did not go through with the business and complain. You go on Yelp. <laughs> One star did not kill my wife. So basically, Billy Wayne is saying, look, I wasn't going to do anything. I was just going to take this dumb Yankees money and go off into the sunset. And there were a lot of people in the community that said Billy Wayne was not a good guy. He was crooked. He was corrupt in a lot of ways. But he had never been involved in anything violent before. He had never killed anyone. He just was like a guy that was going to take money where he could and make deals and scrape a little top off that cocaine that they confiscated. That's for sure this guy. But everyone was like kind of like this seems weird. He doesn't seem like a murderer, especially of women. So this seems odd. And I guess that the prosecutor felt like what he was saying was real. And he did say, though, that he had accepted the modern day equivalent of like 22 grand from this guy. And he wanted to sail off into the sunset with this dumb Jamoke's money. But this other guy who was actually kind of a bad guy told him that there was a contract out on him, on Billy Wayne, for not killing Maria Marshall and taking all this money. Wow. Yeah, so this Shreveport circle of crime, apparently, word got out. And so this guy, Larry Thompson, said, look, 
I'm supposed to kill you because you're not killing Maria Marshall, but how about you give me a ton of the money or most of the money, you get to keep some for yourself, and I just go up and I kill Maria Marshall, and then you don't have to die, and you get to keep some of the money. We get to have a nice little trip to Atlantic City, hang out, maybe gamble a little bit, hang out with some broads, you know? And so at this point, Billy Wayne was like, okay, if I don't have to kill anyone, then and I get to keep some of the money, then this seems like a fine deal for me. Somebody's killing Maria, but I'm not doing it. Yeah, it's like hinge, but for gross people, it's cringe. (laughs) It is cringe. That's good. So they look into this Larry Thompson guy, and it does look, he's been involved in a lot of shady shit. He has been involved in robberies. He has been involved in assaults. He was one of the suspects in a 1979 cold case killing of another woman who was a beloved blonde mother. Wow. So he's just a lady killer. Yeah, died in a similar fashion to Maria. So this guy, Larry Thompson, looks much more likely for this. So they decide to make a deal. And after they decide to make this deal, they actually play the tape that Rob made for Billy Wayne because they're like, look, this is this is what Rob Marshall said about you, essentially trying to say it was all Billy Wayne. And I guess Billy Wayne said that Rob was so stupid that he deserved the death penalty just for stupidity, not even for the crime. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, I don't know how much you get to talk, sir, but I don't don't know. Yeah, I don't know, Billy Wayne, if you got a leg to stand on here, buddy. But yeah, so they ended up cutting a deal with him. And on December 19th, 1984, they arrested 42-year-old Larry Thompson, who was at a hamburger stand at the time of his arrest. And they extradited him to New Jersey. So law enforcement had been monitoring Rob Marshall, who, by the way, after he got over his heartbreak about Felice, had been dating around three months since his wife had been brutally murdered, including another woman in Tom's River who was married and socially knew the Marshalls. Gross. Yes. So the authorities discovered that he had been attempting to buy plane tickets from Florida to Costa Rica, likely due to the tougher extradition policies of Costa Rica. So they knew that he was trying to get out. And on the same day that they nabbed Larry Thompson, they also finally arrested Robert O. Marshall for plotting his wife's murder. Rob and Larry's joint trial began in Mays Landing, New Jersey, on January 28, 1986. The prosecution argued that Rob had organized the murder of his wife of 20 years in order to be free to marry his mistress and pay off his considerable debts with a $1.5 million life insurance, which, again, is about more like $4.3 million in today's money. The insurance policies, including the six-figure one that Rob had insured and rushed into effect on the day that Maria was killed, were all entered into evidence. Felice testified for the prosecution and against her former lover, saying that in December of 1983, Rob had told her that he was deeply in debt, of course, due to Maria's spending, and if he could only get rid of her that the insurance he had on her would cover the balance and then some. Now, Felice is not happy to be on the stand. She had made a deal with the prosecutor to testify, but they were specifically not supposed to mention some aspects of her life, including if she had also been unfaithful with other men other than Rob. Why is that relevant? So the prosecutor said, of course not. That's not going to come up. 
But Rob's attorney on cross was trying to make her look bad and also trying to make it seem like she was this bitter ex, essentially, who was mad at Rob for getting her name dragged through the mud. And that's why she was saying all this stuff and that it wasn't true. So Felice was not excited about this. And I honestly, I I do feel bad. Like jokes aside earlier in the episode, I looked her up the real Felice, because it's not her real name. It's the name used by Joe McGinnis in the book. And she's still with her husband. She's a grandmother these days. There was like something about her having a heart attack when I Googled her. I was like, oh God, this poor woman. Like this is an event that happened a very long time ago. She needs to be able to live her life. She wasn't involved in the murder. She made some judgment errors. Obviously her husband forgave her and it's none of our business if her husband and her have worked this out decades ago. Yep. There's been so many cases that you've covered where both of the partners are involved in the end of someone who's in their ways, what life, that it's when it's a case where they actually maybe didn't know anything, it's hard to like realize that sometimes. Like, oh, you actually, there is a world where you had no idea that this crazy person was actually going to do something like this. Absolutely. And I do feel bad for those people. And it's because then, I mean, especially in today's age. Now, I think with Felice and her husband, because this is the 80s, at least they couldn't be hounded on social media. They just ended up moving. I think they they moved out of state. I'm not going to say where they ended up, but they moved out of state. They had like a chain of rental video stores for a while. Like they ended up very happy. They're still happy. So at least they got out of it. But even in modern cases where the affair partner is not actually involved in any of the murder, did not know. I do feel a little bad because the public is so mean. I mean, I'm mean about it. Like we were making jokes earlier because when you're involved in something like this, all of a sudden your personal life is on display. It's up for random people. Like we talked about it with Mary Jo Buttafuoco, like Howard Stern's talking about it. Yeah. But ultimately like don't have an affair with a married person and don't cheat on your partner. I think that's a good rule of thumb. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, just just don't just get get a divorce. divorce. Just split up, split up, have an open relationship. What the fuck ever. But like, don't sneak around and have affairs. And then this all can be avoided. You won't have to like flee town. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. So that's why we continue to use the pseudonym here. Billy Wayne McKinnon was the star witness against both Rob and Larry Thompson. He detailed how he was put in touch with Rob by Bob Cumber, how James Davis was the go-between with the money orders, how there was a contract out on himself, supposedly, for not following through, and how Larry Thompson ultimately became involved and was the one who ended up killing Maria Marshall and also demanded that Rob get injured somehow. He wanted to shoot Rob, like, in the arm or something. And Rob refused because, of course, I know, but that would have been like so much better as far as potentially getting away with murder. Yes. Yeah. It would have looked so much more like on par for what that crime would have actually been. Yes. But of course, Rob was too chicken shit for that. So right away, the cops knew something was wrong. So the only problem with Billy Wayne's story was that six witnesses alibied Larry Thompson saying that he was in Louisiana at the time that Maria Marshall was killed. Oh, that's a lot. Six people is a lot. Although I do have to say half of those witnesses were his family, which is always a little suspect. Of course, yeah. It was his brother, his teenage son, and Larry's wife were three of the six witnesses. But still, there's six. 
So Larry Thompson was cool as a cucumber as his attorney argued that Billy Wayne McKinnon was the real shooter and that he had only used Larry as a scapegoat because he knew that the state would not cut him a deal if he was the real killer. So that's what Larry's attorney is saying, which is pretty good. I mean, Larry did not testify in his own defense. He was mum the whole time. But they've got one guy's word against six witnesses testifying that he was in Louisiana on that day. Unlike Larry, Robert Marshall did, however, testify in his own defense. And just like the fake suicide attempt, it backfired horribly. Under examination, his excuses were very obviously flimsy. He was forced to acknowledge that he had had two more affairs in the months after Maria died, other than Felice. He also had to admit on the stand that he had cremated Maria against her father's wishes because they were Catholic and he wanted her to be buried. And that not only had he done that, he had left her ashes at the funeral home in a cardboard box and not paid to get her an urn and never picked up her ashes. Wow. Yeah. Well, he's running around. He's going to Florida. He's dating all these women. So the prosecutor was having absolutely none of this pretending that he loved his wife. So this was just sickening to his kids. They're watching this. They had gone in hoping their dad was innocent, hoping that he was going to get exonerated. And they're just watching him fall apart. And they're watching the truth come out, which is obviously a horrible moment. You're realizing that your father did kill your mother, that your father did plot your beloved mother's demise. And his son, Robbie, had already kind of come to this realization because while this trial was going on, it was clear that it was not looking good for Rob. And he had apparently called Robbie and asked him to lie on the stand. Billy Wayne McKinnon had said a specific time that he had met him to give him money. And he had called his son and said, go on the stand and say that I was home at that time, because then that'll destroy Billy Wayne's entire testimony. If he's lying about that thing, then we can make it look like he's lying about everything. And Robbie was like, I'm not going to do that because it's not true. You weren't home. And he's like, well, just think about it. And he called him back and he's like, have you thought about it? And he's like, dad, I'm not lying. And that was for the eldest son. He was like, oh, shit. Oh, man, he really is guilty. I mean, can you imagine asking your kid to perjure themselves? Come on. No, that's unbelievable. Yeah, so Rob was very obviously guilty, and it definitely must have appeared that way to the jury because they very easily handed down a guilty verdict. And the evidence against Rob was pretty overwhelming, but the evidence against Larry Thompson was not, and he ended up getting acquitted. I can understand where the jury was coming from. There's no way you could say beyond a reasonable doubt that Larry Thompson was the gunman in this situation. No. So Larry was set free while Robert O. Marshall was given the ultimate penalty. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Whoa. Billy Wayne McKinnon was sentenced to five years in prison for his part in the murder, but he only ended up serving three months of that per his plea agreement before he was paroled. He entered the witness protection program, but ended up leaving it after only a few weeks, saying that it cramped his style and that he'd rather chance it being out there living as himself. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he returned to Louisiana and his questionable business ventures. He was not involved in any other homicides, to my knowledge. 
Meanwhile, Bob Cumber, the hardware store guy, made a very bad call. He did. He made a bad decision. He was offered a deal in which he would plead guilty to conspiracy to commit insurance fraud in exchange for some probation and no actual prison time, which was a great deal. But Bob must have had an attorney who gave him very bad advice because he did not believe that they were going to be able to convict him. Because they were saying, otherwise, you go to trial for conspiracy to commit murder. And he did not think that they'd be able to prove that he was part of the conspiracy to commit the murder. And he also thought that maybe he could file a lawsuit against the county for false arrest if he was acquitted. So he's like, let's chance it. I go to trial. I get acquitted. And then I can sue the county and I can make some money. So he's thinking that he could have a payday here. That turned out to be a huge mistake. Because on September 11th, 1986, he was found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and sentenced to life in prison. What? The hardware guy? The hardware store guy who just connected the people. Oh, my God. That was a bad gamble. I mean, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, eh? In 2006, Governor Richard Cody pardoned the poor schmuck after he had served just about 20 years of his sentence. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, man, Bob. I think he has since passed away. I'm not entirely sure, but I think he has. But speaking of death, in 2006, Robert O. Marshall successfully appealed his death sentence due to ineffective counsel, which if they let him get on the stand, then I think they were ineffective, and was resentenced to 30 years with the possibility of parole in 2014. In January of 2015, he was granted his first parole hearing Two out of three of his sons, eldest Robbie and middle son Chris, spoke out against their father's release. Well, the youngest baby had always supported him. He held on to his father's innocence. He was not granted parole, but unfortunately for Robert O. Marshall, it did not much matter because he ended up dying the following month in prison of a stroke at the age of 75. Well, that's a long life. It is. And, you know, we're at the end of the story. And, of course, questions remain. If Larry Thompson was not the shooter, who was? Was it actually Billy Wayne McKinnon? Because the authorities in New Jersey were very convinced it was not Billy Wayne. So this was obviously a question that plagued the loved ones of Maria Marshall for a very long time, thinking that A shooter went free, whether it was Billy Wayne or maybe even really Larry Thompson. Somebody got away with it. Well, the answer came years and years later. Larry Thompson had unsuccessfully tried to sue New Jersey law enforcement for violating his civil rights and for wrongful arrest. But a jury in Louisiana actually decided that he didn't have a case. So he never got that money and he returned to a life of crime. In 2003, he was convicted for his part in an armored car robbery. It's like one of those like bank-like trucks, basically. And the attempted murder of a police officer. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison, which was effectively a life sentence at that point in his life. Now, here is where it gets interesting. In 2014, after serving about 12 years or almost 12 years of his sentence, and at the age of 71, Larry Thompson admitted to authorities that his family and the other witnesses had lied for him and that he had indeed 
been the person who shot Maria Marshall to death. This guy was such a piece of shit, too. He got up and shook the prosecutor's hand and was like, good try, buddy. And he would call him for months afterwards to taunt him about going free. Wow. Due to double jeopardy, Larry could not be tried again for the murder. And the statute of limitations had run out to charge the lying witnesses for perjury. But there's even more. He also confessed to the following, thanks to Lori Johnston's Medium article titled The Shooting of Maria Marshall. I have a whole laundry list of things that he confessed to. He confessed to a bank robbery that he had gotten away with, 33 night depository box robberies, three armored car robberies, burning down two businesses as well as a private residence. Wow. That's not all. He also confessed to three additional murders that had gone unsolved. Was one of them that 1979 one? Yes, it was. He had murdered a 32-year-old mother of a 12-year-old girl, Deanna Elliott Montgomery, and that murder was also done at the behest of her husband for life insurance money. He had also killed two men named Larry Wayne Lester and Chester Underwood, who were both shot to death in 1988 and 1979, respectively. So that 1988 one, Larry Wayne Lester would have been still alive if they had successfully put Larry away. He is still alive, but his projected release date is December 17th, 2069. So I'm thinking it's Pretty likely that he's going to pass away in jail. Uh, yeah, I'd say. Well, yep. I Oh, you know what, though? I do have a nice little palate cleanser. We have a Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. In 1990, a miniseries was made about this case based on Joe McGinnis's book, Blind Faith, which I used for a reference today. Robbie Marshall served as a consultant for the series and he ended up getting close to the actress who played Maria, his mother. The actress's name was Joanna Kearns, who some of you may recognize as the mother on Growing Pains. Well, Joanna really took a shine to Robbie, and she ended up introducing him to her TV daughter, Stop Tracy it. Gold. Stop. Mm -hmm. The two completely hit it off, and they ended up getting married. Stop it. That just gave me goosebumps. Yep. Rob became a teacher, and they are still together to this day. They have four sons. Oh, my God. I know. Those Marshall boy jeans are strong. strong. <laughs> a lot of boys. <laughs> yeah. It's super sweet. They're a really cute couple. So, you guys, if you were Growing Pains fans, this is the guy that Tracy Gold ended up with. Well... I would like to forget about Rob Marshall Sr. <laughs> I think that we can effectively do that with an in conclusion, Andy. In conclusion, I think it's always a safe bet that when something tragic happens to you, try not to offer up explanations or solve your own crime less than five hours after it happened. Yeah, let's leave this to the cops. Let's leave it to the professionals. The yeah. detectives, the forensic people like let's just let them all do their jobs and you know some true crime podcasters let them solve it for yeah. you actual <laughs> investigative journalists how about that not us definitely someone else 
Also, like if the cops are coming over to your home to talk to you after your partner has just been murdered, maybe don't offer them a beverage of their choice, like a whiskey, while you're dressed in full new attire. I mean, it's just, it's not a good look. Sir, not the time. And as always, just get a divorce. divorce. Please, for the love of God. And trust your gut. Thanks, guys. Love you. Bye. Bye.